Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth gear for all types of weather, all types of terrain, all types of budgets. It's clothing that just works. Check them out at Huntworth Gear. Dot com. This week's podcast is one probably going to get a bunch of crap for, but uh, this guest from the Backcountry Hunting Podcast is an encyclopedia. Uh, just rattles off all this information uh, about ballistics, different rifles, different cartridges, and each kind of use case for them. And the last few podcasts have just been full of great information. Um, and this one is going to be no different. What an amazing guest. And, you know, we are a bow hunting podcast, but, uh, this, this Western hunt here is got a lot of our guys thinking about traveling out West. It's got us thinking about, um, what rifle do we need to use? Is it going to be okay? Do we need to buy something new? Um, all of that stuff, and we cover that and more um, 
great podcast, tons and tons of information. You guys are going to really like this one. Um, quickly got to go, uh, give a shout out to, um, all of our partners. Um, again, this year we are, uh, running pretty much the same, um, you know, Huntworth, obviously, um, love those guys. Happy to work with them. Um, Latitude back working with Latitude again this year, and they just launched their new knee pads. Um, they actually had the, uh, a few of those for sale at the show. Um, and they're the, the same kind of Vibram knee pads that they were using before, uh, with a couple tweaks this time. So, um, they have a different rubberized pattern that's got their topo line pattern on the front, which is pretty cool. Uh, but they do have, uh, extra padding in the knee. Um, so they're a bit more comfortable. And then, um, before the knee pads all had the same orientation. So there wasn't a left and right one, um, just for manufacturing. And this time they do have those. So they do have a left and right orientation. So you can have the buckles out and away from each other. Uh, so they're not getting snagged together when your knees come together, um, all that stuff. Um, it's just those little tiny th differences that, uh, you know, make a make a big difference. It, it, it's the attention to detail. And, uh, you know, when we were at the show, that was kind of like what I was telling people about latitude, like why, why latitude over, you know, any of the other companies and, um, you know, just the way that they approach things, kind of doing it from the perspective of they're out there using the gear and they're building, you know, kind of a, a premium product in, in a space where, you know, kind of people are going away from that. So, this is just, you know, a testament to that with the, some of that attention to detail to the little things that, that bothered them about a product that was already out there. So check those out. You can use our code uh, BHC to save 15% uh, over there on their website. Spartan Forge again this year. Um, Spartan Forge, we're going to have Bill on here pretty soon. Um, the the Blue Force Tracker stuff that he was testing um, with us during our Patreon hunt, um, all of that is uh, up and running and, and going to be uh, further improved. Uh, but he was showing us the, the dual mapping stuff, the, the way that, um, you can use the, the shading on the slopes, kind of like Mark Livesey talked about, um, to kind of, uh, outline some of these spots, but they're beta testing. So if you were in that first group and a lot of the guys that listen to this podcast are, um, you are going to be able to see their AI on the desktop and that's moving to, you know, the, the mobile devices here pretty shortly, but regardless, um, that's going to be on there. And that's when he first launched Spartan Forge. That's what he was trying to integrate into, um, Onyx, but that deal didn't go through. So he had to build a mapping program of his own, uh, to add that in there. And that's now coming to fruition. Um, and he was showing some of us that at the, uh, um, the NRA show. So super cool, uh, really awesome, and uh, going to have him on to kind of outline and kind of go over some of that stuff. So that's going to be cool. You can save 25% on that if you're not already using Spartan Forge, um, using code Bowhunter. Um, you got to go on the website for that. Um, Big Shot Targets, uh, those guys are awesome. They've got a new uh, mini uh, mule deer target coming out here pretty soon. Um, and with Delta McKenzie, um, that was a big acquisition for them as well. Uh, 10% off, you can use code uh, BCP there. Uh, Zinger, Kanadi, all that. Um, those guys are still going strong, just texting back and forth with Brian um, today. So really happy to be working with them again. And it looks like everything's going forward with Lucky Buck. And, uh, and additionally, for our Patreons, you know, uh, to uh, bolster the giveaways, we have all these companies are, are 
giving back. Um, that's part of what we do here. Um, and then that bow case I was talking about, um, I've, uh, I've got some of those coming from Flambeau, that uh, formula bow case. Check it out, especially if you have multiple bows. Um, really awesome to be able to switch those in and out and have a, a airplane-ready case um, that uh, is just, you know, it, it it's built for guys like me that um, – use i like to keep a lot of stuff in my case i like to switch out bows um i don't like a whole lot of moving parts uh there's not very much that touches the uh the, the actual bottom it's just the edges of the limbs there's no foam to get frozen to your bow uh ask me how i know but uh yeah so we've got some of those uh to give away for our quarterly giveaways as well uh, so really looking forward to working with them uh and everybody and uh thanks as always for listening this podcast has so much information in it i know you guys are gonna love it um, thanks for listening all right everybody adam back with the bow hunter chronicles podcast and uh and again, this is one of those podcasts, you know, we, we kind of eased into it with the, with the spring bear hunt we did the calling episode with Zach and, uh, that was kind of archery based, but now we're going to dive a little bit more into the, into the rifle side taboo. I know, but, uh, that's, that's kind of where we're, where we're headed here. Um, uh, and I've got the host of the backcountry hunting podcast, Joseph Von Benedict on here, uh, v, you know, Outdoor writer, podcaster, you know, sounds like a former guide, you know, mountain man, if you will, uh, on the podcast here to talk, you know, all things uh, Western hunting this morning. So uh, how are you doing this morning? Oh, good. It's a pleasure to be joining you here this morning. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate it. You know, for us guys, I guess, east of the Mississippi, you know, when you start to talk about mountains, we talk, start to talk about uh you know, elevation, any of this stuff, it's, it's really hard to, to fathom, you know, where the, where the flatlanders over here. And so everybody <laughs> has these big dreams and aspirations of, you know, and, and, and we're guilty of it too, uh, you know, going out and we're going to do this giant backcountry elk hunt. We've never done it before, but you know what, we're going to go in and we've got, we'll, we'll watch all the YouTube videos. We'll listen to all the podcasts. Um, and so we're just trying to, trying to, make that curve a little bit easier, uh, maybe not on the success, but maybe on the, 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 the learning portion of it, of what, of the, what not to do. So, um, so what is your, uh, your background as far as how, how did you grow up hunting and, uh, how did you get into the position that you're at right now? No, it's a long story, but I'll try and keep it short. So it's interesting. You know, I just had an interest in, um, in hunting, fishing, shooting, uh, from a pretty young age, I got into competitive shooting, uh, believe it or not, with muzzleloaders, traditional long rifles when I was 14 and did a little bit of pseudo gunsmithing. And then uh, through my teenage years and into my early 20s, I did a lot of archery with traditional archery. So kind of in a way, you know, a purist and from your world, the bow hunting world, I shot my first branch antler bow, uh, bull elk with a, a recurve bow, custom fox archery recurve. And I've shot mule deer with long bows, shot a mountain lion with the recurve. And those are still some of the best hunts I've ever done. In my uh, late teens, I got interested in, in guiding as well. And I kind of worked toward that, did a little bit of uh, guiding, well, nine years worth in Montana and Southern Utah, guiding for elk and mule deer primarily. And 
transitioned more and more into the compound archery world, worked partway through college in an archery pro shop, shooting 3D tournaments and so forth, and really loved it. I still love shooting a bow. I don't think there's anything more therapeutic in this world. So yeah, one thing led to another, and and because I I kind of got fortunate and was relatively good at it, I started writing about it through college. I wanted to be a fiction writer, I thought, <laughs> but I had to make some money meanwhile and submitted stories in college, and they published, and one thing led to another, and so I got hired on as an associate editor with Peterson Publishing a long time ago, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've been writing full-time ever since and started the backcountry hunting podcast about five years ago it's rocking and rolling and really love doing that interacting with other podcasts like you and yours and uh, listeners as well so that's a beautiful beautiful place to be in life so it, it seems like some most of your i don't know most recent content seems to be um, firearm related gun related so having that mindset you know from us here where we say you know it's you know life is better with a bow you know that 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 old catchphrase and you know especially from a from a traditional standpoint you know from the muzzleloader standpoint from longbow recurve and i i you know when you when you say that i've got you know a couple of different friends now that you know grew up like in the rendezvous culture you know, with all sure. the skins and all the old French trapping type stuff. And they they really don't usually deviate too far from that into modern rifle or it's it's usually looked at, you know, definitely kind of down your nose. So how was the transition from, you know, <laughs> the, the most primitive equipment? And you're not a you're not an old guy. So it isn't like that's all they had when you were a kid. And now you're using modern stuff, right? So how did that transition work? You know, I think it's just an inquiring mind and a search for additional capability and and knowledge. My dad is a hardcore purist. He's the one that got me started with the traditional bows and the flintlock rifles and so forth. And he has never deviated. I don't think he's ever shot a compound bow in his life. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I saw some of my friends shooting their compounds and I, I've never, I guess, lost the appreciation of the art of traditional archery, but you can't argue that out past 30 yards or so, a compound is just far more effective. And here in the West, a lot of our opportunities really occur between, oh, let's call it 40 and 60 yards, right? And I saw my friends shooting smaller groups at 60 yards than I could shoot at 25 with my recurve longbow and so i thought well why not add that capability and well <laughs> actually i can tell you a story that drove me from my recurve to try a compound and at this point i was already shooting competitively uh and had been for these eight or ten years with a rifle in various disciplines and i've always had a technically wired brain where like the instinctive shooting with a, a traditional bow was challenging for me. I really had to work at it where with a, a rifle, you know, the technical aspects of shooting came very naturally. So can I tell my story? Oh yeah, please a minute do. For that? Okay. So I was in Northern Utah and there's this area they call the extended archery unit where you can back then, at least you could buy an over the counter mule deer tag 
and hunt pretty much till the end of the year. So you could get up in the snow and hunt during the, the rut for these big mule deer that live on the slopes east of Salt Lake City. Uh, that area, they don't hold a rifle hunt because if you turn a bullet loose the wrong direction, it's going to land in Salt Lake City. So these deer were pretty much only archery hunted, but it was a long archery season. It wasn't easy hunting, but there were occasionally some real big deer taken out of there. And this one particular afternoon on a college day, my buddy and I played hooky from our last class and headed up there. And, um, from, uh, from the, let me think, I got to get my story straight. We hiked through knee deep snow for about a mile and a half to get to the Canyon system. We wanted to hunt. And when we got there, there's this giant Canyon and most of the way up the other side, there was a buck with three does, a, a good sized buck. He wasn't a giant, but we believed he was about a solid 170, 175 inch deer, clean four by four with brow tines, you know, plus brow tines, talking Western count here. And he had three does and then a smaller uh, three by three with him. Brutal, brutally long way away because there's no way to approach without going all the way around. So my buddy stayed on, on, uh, the ridge where we'd found him from, and I dropped all the way down that canyon, came all the way up the next ridge. It took me two and a half or three hours pushing through knee-deep snow and just exhausting. Once I got up that ridge, uh, I found a, a rock outcropping that I could kind of use as concealment. The reason I'd done this was we'd, we'd try to figure out every way to stalk this buck, and there just wasn't a way, but there was a chute created by natural rock outcroppings above him. And we felt like if one of us gently bumped him from the other side of the canyon, he'd go up and over that ridge. And sure enough, when I got there, there was a pretty well-beaten deer trail through this knee-deep snow coming right up through that chute. Couldn't see him because of the bulge of the land, but I knew he was 150 yards below me. So I got set up and I was in camel, but it was camo and this everything was covered in snow so i actually rolled in the snow and got it crusted on my on my camo i checked my bow and when i put an arrow on the you know i knocked an arrow my bowstring had a quarter inch of ice built up on it we're talking mid-december here right so i had to use my thumbnail to take off my gloves use my thumbnail to scrape all the ice off my bowstring make sure my rest was flexible and moving and uh, sorry, no, I was shoot. I was shooting a recurve. I didn't have a rest. Anyway, got the ice off my bowstring, got an arrow knocked, and it was 18 yards to where this trail crossed through this this chute, and then just a cliff on the other side. And I knew my buddy had seen me tuck in there, so I just waited. I figured he'd come piling off. This is before cell phones, right? And sure enough, I waited till I was about frozen and ready to leave. And, and I finally peeked around the corner of this outcropping just in time to see antler tips coming over the rise, the bulge of the, the land there. And there was a three point buck and, and right behind him was the big deer. <laughs> they were just slowly working their way up this trail. And I was in perfect position, good form. I was calm. I had prepared myself to take an 18-yard shot on a slowly walking deer. I figured if I made a sound that close, he'd just go into overdrive and I wouldn't get a shot at all. He passed behind a pine tree, 
I drew my bow and as he emerged, I locked my eyes on a, a tuft of hair near the front of his shoulder. I was going to shoot at that tuft, figuring with his movement, I'd land the arrow right through his rib cage. To this day, I believed if that's what had happened, I probably would have, but he stopped. And in the back of my brain, the excited little boy started jumping up and down and screaming, he's stopped. It's perfect. Shoot, shoot, shoot. And I didn't pick a spot. And I shot that arrow right over his back, almost shaved hair. You know how they say, if you don't pick a spot when you're shooting a traditional bow, you'll shoot around the edges of your target. That's what I did. My arrow smashed against the rock face behind him. That deer took off and I never saw him again. And I was scarred for life. (laughs) (laughs) And so I started thinking about it. I thought, you know, if I'd had a compound, not that it would have solved everything. I don't want to, you know, use that excuse or cop out or whatever, because I was the one that screwed up. Right. But it probably would have been easier to hold it together. I'd have been at full draw and instead of turning the arrow loose with my pin on the front of his shoulder, I'd have just shifted it to the. In wild country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss wild country Wednesdays from seven to 11 PM Eastern presented by Primos. Speak the language waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep-sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment crease behind his shoulder and squeeze, squeeze the trigger. I'd have brought that deer home. I think so. I went and bought one <laughs> and two weeks later. I won a tournament with it. <laughs> yeah. When you talk about that technical aspect of, you know, the rifle shooting and all of that, you know, with, I enjoy shooting traditional and I, I feel like I shoot instinctive, like the, the Hank Hill, like the, the air, the front of the arrow never stops moving. You know, I'm, I'm looping it right into where I, where I want. And, I feel mm, like there's nothing yeah. nothing better than when you make that 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 shot. Now with a compound, it's like okay, is my anchor the same? Can I see? Is my housing light? like it's like you check all the boxes and the arrow should go right where it's supposed to. Um, entirely different thing. And then I feel like it's the exact opposite when when you miss or make a bad shot with a compound. And last week at at our archery league, like I had target panic so bad, arrows were spraying <laughs> everywhere. I shot, I shot two zeros, so I missed four Fun. times, four <laughs> times. Um, it it was it was the worst I'd ever shot. So right before this podcast, matter of fact, I was shooting my hinge release over in the other side of the basement, trying to trying to work my way out of it. Um, yeah, no, those demons can get you, but I'd been, you know, I've shot competitively with pretty technical farms for so long that I found those skills pretty well transferred over. As soon as I was showed how to build a correct shooting position, you know, my posture and everything, right. Get the right anchor, man. It's, it just felt so natural. And like you say, you got a checklist, you do your checklist correctly. You're going to hate your target. Yeah. So, so since you're, since you're there and you're talking a little bit about the, the rifles and things, um, in the shooting, this is, this is one, like the big question. And I would say, especially for like serious bow guys and, it, you know, with bows, guys want to have a new bow 
every year. They want to have a new bow every year, but they may still be using, you know, grandpa. For us, it's grandpa's 3030 or 30-06 or whatever, and that's 270, whatever. So from a all-over type caliber, if you were going to pick one ca- – if you could only own one gun and one caliber, taking into consideration, you know, foot-pounds of energy – overall ballistics and now you know as the world changes ammo availability right that that one overall round caliber for elk bear mule deer where where do you land on that (laughs) that's like asking my wife to pick one pair of shoes that does everything but i'll try so you can go two different ways here you can say all right, I'm going to be a one rifle man. Okay. So it needs to be versatile. And then you either go old school or you go cutting edge. If you're going old school and you're not going to shoot past 400 yards ever on game, I would probably choose the 30 out six just because it's so widely available and it's so capable and proven within that distance. However, in the rifle world, some tremendous advancements have been made in cartridge design in the last 20 years. Let's keep in mind that the 30-06 was designed in 1906. That's nearly 120 years ago, right? Would you take a pickup truck built in 1906 to, you know, be competitive on today's farming or ranching or rodeoing industry? No way, right? Now the 30-06 has maintained its capabilities a little better than those old Ford pickups right built in the let's say the 1920s but it's still uh pretty well outclassed by the modern cartridges the 7mm prc would probably be my top choice for a modern cutting edge rifle cartridge and uh i'd always shoot a heavy controlled expansion bullet since you mentioned that elk are on the menu black bears of course you know minnesota you you know this stuff but uh a bear is a unique creature. Most of them shot are under 200 pounds, but they never actually stop growing. That's why a 19-year-old bear will have a Boone and Crockett skull, while a 14-year-old bear may not. I'm just pulling numbers out of my hat, but the the bears just keep on growing. And although most of us shoot sub-200-pound bears, we all dream of shooting that four or 500-pounder, right? So it behooves us to use a rifle and cartridge that's capable of cleanly and ethically taking that bear from any reasonable shot angle we're talking including steeply quartered stuff here right when our opportunity presents so for that you know i i like a 7mm or a 30 caliber with a heavy for caliber controlled expansion bullet as far as rifle type man i mean that's just a wide open discussion but something that fits you well that's accurate that's reliable and that you trust and shoot well. Uh, it's really important. Kind of like a bow, only, uh, you know, there's a really nice side effect here. Rifles don't lose value like bows do. You know, a bow that's three or four years old is going to be worth maybe 25% of what you had to pay for it new, right? One of these high-end bows anyway. A good rifle is going to hold its value. And eventually, if you have a you know classic rifle, like a pre-64 Winchester Model 70 or something, Take care of it. It'll just keep going up in value. And and that's kind of the kind of where I want to go with this because of the 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 new 
cartridges, I mean, from our world of, of bow hunting and kind of where we're at in the, in the mobile hunting world, you know, we've been, everybody's essentially been, if you're hunting public land, you're, you're hunting mobile no matter what, but the gear keeps changing. And then us with, with podcasts and media and the information becoming more and more available, everything is newer and better and shinier. And, you know, you've got the, the old tried and true 300 wind mag and mm-hmm. 308. And then it's like, Oh, six, five creed more. And then there's the bickering online. And then there's six, five PRC, seven PRC. And it just seems to be like, how much better really is it than those tried and true, you know, what is the main differences? Like what, sure. what makes you choose the seven PRC over, you know, a seven millimeter rem mag or you know, something sure. in that. Well, that's the fun stuff. And just to kind of preface here a little bit, imagine a compound bow from 40 years ago. The new cartridges are the compound bow of, of the rifle world, right? They are what drives increased capability, precision, consistency, and so forth. So just like a bow from the last couple or three years is going to be uh, have a a whole lot more consistency. They're going to be quieter. They're going to be tamer in your hand and so forth than a bow built in 1980. Uh, Cartridges now have that capability, a a hugely increased capability. So how did they accomplish that is kind of what I hear you asking and why exactly is something like a 7PRC better than a 30-06, 300 Win Mag, 7 Rem Mag? So the first thing uh, is the rifling twist rates are faster. Why does this matter? It enables us to use the long stretched out high BC bullets available on the market today. High BC, that's ballistic coefficient, is a a measure of aerodynamics. And the reason it's so important is because you can start a bullet three or 400 feet per second slower than a bullet of the same weight with poor aerodynamics. And by the time you get to 300 or 350 yards, it's going faster. It's bucking the wind better. It's got less drop and it's carrying a lot more energy. Take that out to four, 500, even 600 yards like many shooters are very capably shooting these days. There's just no comparison. So I, an analogy I like to use is if you'll take a, the highest BC bullet that a 30-06 can shoot, mm, It's not going to be real high BC, but it's a lot better than the traditional stuff. So just for example, let's say a Nosler 190 grain Acubond long range bullet. You put that in your 30 out six and you drive it to 2,700 feet per second. Now let's compare that to a traditional 180 grain flat based lead nose bullet out of a 300 Winchester Magnum. Okay. A lot lower ballistic coefficient, but it's going to exit the muzzle close to 3,000 feet per second faster, right? At 300 to 350 yards, the 30-06 is now hitting as hard or harder than the 300 wind mag. And at 500 yards, it's dropping less, it's drifting less less in the wind, and it's carrying a lot more energy to uh, the point of impact. So just by using a a better bullet, a more aerodynamic, streamlined bullet, the 30-06 closes the gap and then even outperforms a proper 30 caliber magnum. And that's a moderate example because the 30 out six can't actually shoot the best bullets of the type. The very best modern bullets are going to be 
heavy for caliber. I keep using that term, but it's not just weight. Weight adds mass that lends momentum and helps your aerodynamics, but the profile is what's most important of all. You've got a long, sleek boat tail, a very fine entry nose. Think of a speedboat, how much easier it flows through water than you know a barge. And the speedboat's your high BC bullet. The barge is your traditional flat-based lead nose bullet. So when you push a bullet with a high ballistic coefficient and a lot of weight at a reasonable to high velocity, you get downrange performance that they didn't even imagine 40 years ago. And it makes a huge difference, even at just 250 yards, 300 yards. If you're shooting a you know, 7mm Remington Magnum, shoot a high BC bullet in it, and you will have a lot more authority when that bullet arrives on your elk's you know, rib cage at 300 yards, and you'll have less wind drift. So you're a lot more likely to make a precise shot out in the West Open country where there are always winds, and they're usually of varying vectors, different directions, different wind conditions between you and your animal. Now, the next important thing to, to your rifling twist rate, which of course is crucial to stabilize those long, sleek bullets. And let me just digress here for a minute and explain why. If you don't spin those bullets fast enough, they destabilize and start to yaw and then tumble. Imagine a children's toy, like a top that you spin on the floor or on a, on a table, right? If you've got one that's short and broad, has a big disc that spins, you can spin that thing pretty slow and it'll stay stable and upright for a long time. If you have one that's kind of tall and has an, a smaller diameter disc on it, or maybe a ball on it, you got to spin it fast to stabilize it. And as it slows down, it's going to start to wobble and then tip over long before that short wide one does. Bullets are the same. These long bullets need fast rifling twist rates to stabilize them. The kind of the industry standard now is about a one turn every eight inches. Uh, they call it a one in eight twist rate in your rifling barrel where traditional twist rates for the 7mm were about one in nine, one in nine and a half. 30 calibers were one in 10 to one in 12. So you speed that up, you shoot the heavier high BC bullets, you get a lot more performance. Now, why do the modern cartridges shoot high BC bullets better? You know, why can't you just put a great long range bullet in your 30-06 or 300 Win Mag or your 7 Rem Mag? That brings us to the next characteristic of modern cartridge design, and that's a thing that we informally call head height. That's the distance from the cartridge case mouth to the end of your magazine. It's got to be long enough that you can seat those long, fine entry bullets in there without pushing them down into the, the cartridge case neck so much that the mouth of the case is hanging over the curve of the bullet, right? All, all those traditional cartridges, 7 rem mag, 300 wind mag, 30 out 6, they have a short head height. The difference with cartridges such as the 6.5 Creedmoor, 6.5 PRC, the 28 Nosler, 7 PRC, 300 PRC, all of those is that they're engineered with a long head height. Companies that build them have brought that shoulder down, just leaving more distance in the front of the magazine for those long bullets. And it makes a huge difference. All these small factors combined add up to a, a really big, uh, you know, just a, a shift in that status quo of what cartridges and bullets can accomplish. So so kind of like the 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 long and the short of it is, is if you were buying a, a, a new rifle, for something like this, you would want to look especially at some of those newer 
calibers. You'd want to look at twist rates. You'd want to look at um, all of that type of stuff. However, if you were brand new to this and you were headed out west and you weren't planning on being the best of the West and shooting, you know, 800, 1400 yards, whatever. Sure. Your rifle in your cabinet might be good enough with some high quality ammo to kind of let you know where you're, where you kind of stand. It, it would be sufficient. Oh, for sure. And what you just said just now, the high quality ammo is, is key. I will never understand why people spend, you know, three to 10,000 bucks to go west and hunt elk. And then they balk at spending more than 25 bucks on a box of ammo, you know, spend the 60 bucks on a box of ammo or three boxes to get really premium bullets because, you know, you, opportunities in the West are, are hard earned. The West is a, a beautiful place, but it's, uh, you know, getting a good opportunity is, is hard, hard work, especially on public land DIY. So shoot the best thing you can shoot. But in direct answer to qu your question, absolutely. As long as you've got something like a good 270 or 30 out six, you're in business. If it's accurate enough to get you out to 400 yards, I like to preach quarter mile capability, quarter miles, 440 yards. Let's call it 450 for easier math. I think every Western hunter should work hard to achieve quarter mile capability because in my experience, most of the really good opportunities here in the West occur between 300 and 450 yards. Now, I know for a lot of whitetail guys that just hunt big woods country and have never shot at something past 200 yards, that sounds like a long, long way. But as long as you can shoot a one inch, even an inch and a half group, at 100 yards with your rifle consistently from filled positions, you can do it. You just have to put in the time to learn your ballistics and practice from those filled positions. And you will uh, be very grateful when a great big bull elk stands across a canyon 410 yards away and you're able to shoot him squarely through the vitals. It's a big deal. But yeah, premium bullet and a historic cartridge, traditional cartridge for whitetail, just fine. Let me address. Um, 6.5 millimeter cartridges for elk here, if I can, real quick. A lot of elk are killed with 6.5 Creedmoors and 6.5 PRCs and the like. They will do the trick. It's like, in my mind, it's like shooting a great big white tail buck with a 223. It'll work. If you place your shot just right, it's going to end just fine. The trouble with the 6.5s is even if they're heavier bullets, they don't carry a lot of bullet mass and they don't have much frontal diameter to transfer energy. So in my experience, most of the elk that get shot with a 6.5 Creedmoor react like they've been shot with an arrow. And your listeners are going to understand that, right? You put it in the right spot, you give them time to die, it's going to work out. Although, let me say this, if you got another shot, pour it on, man. You don't stop shooting at an elk till they're on the ground. Elk are real, real tough. They have a will to live that surpasses pretty much any other deer species, including moose. Uh, just you know, for a fun little side note, 6.5 PRC is a little better. Always shoot a controlled expansion bullet in either of them so you get the penetration you need. But just as a, you know, I'm going to ruffle some feathers here, but I will come right out and say it. The 6.5s are not good elk cartridges. They can kill elk. They'll keep killing elk for decades, I'm sure. But if you can get into something 7mm to 30 caliber, you're going to have a lot 
more effective on impact results, visible on impact results, shorter blood trails. And if you shoot something around the edges, let's face it, we're all humans, right? We try and make that perfect center at the vital shot, but stuff happens. We don't judge the wind right. Maybe we are a little wobbly in our position. Maybe the animal takes a half step just as the trigger breaks and you hit it around the edge of the vitals. A bigger bullet that creates a bigger wound channel and drives deeper is going to be very valuable insurance against that poor hit. Where a 6.5 Creedmoor or PRC, whew, you may have your work cut out for you to recover that bull. So from from that standpoint and from your history and guiding and things like that, I'm sure, and, and I've heard some of your podcasts where you talk about, you know, the mistakes that you've made, right? Yeah. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky. What are some of the things that you see guys coming out west for the first time or that are, you know, just starting to shoot long distance or whatever? What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen and maybe the easier ones to correct and some of the more difficult ones? Mm, that's a question that we could talk about for hours, but I'll try and, and think of the most crucial ones. Probably the the number one mistake that guys coming out West for the first time make is they don't really believe they're going to have to shoot as far as they end up having to shoot. And so they kind of brush it off and they're like, no, I'm comfortable to 250 yards. Maybe it's 300 yards. I don't need to shoot further than that. I'll just stop closer. Well, it doesn't usually shake out that way. And if those guys make another trip to the West the next year, they're better prepared. So the first thing is believe it, folks. Make yourself become as effective, as ethically effective and lethally effective as possible, as far away as possible. Now, I never uh, endorse shooting long range at big game. There are guys that do it really well and are so good at it that, yeah, they're ethical at 800 yards. But most guys that think they are aren't, right? They haven't put in the hard yards. They haven't walked those miles and worn out those barrels. And yes, I say that for a reason. If you're going to shoot 800 yards on deer, you need to have several worn out barrels in your past that have taught you how to make that kind of shot. The next thing I think that the next mistake that folks make coming out West is not being familiar enough with their rifle and scope that they can quickly get on target. A lot of whitetail hunting is stealthy, but you've got a little bit of time. Now, I know this isn't often the case with bow hunters, but if you're sitting in a blind somewhere, a box blind, or even on a stand somewhere in the Midwest, and you see a deer moving in towards you, you can slowly move into position. You can get steady, and then you can take your time on that shot. Let the deer come to you as close as he will, and then when the window's right, you squeeze the trigger, whether it's a release or a rifle trigger, right? In the West, often you might see an elk moving through the the timber 400 yards away and there's just little gaps 
in the trees. And you got to get on one of those gaps. And as soon as the elk emerges, you give a whistle, hoping he'll stop and give you five seconds to squeeze your trigger. Or it might be a mule deer working up through a, you know, over a ridge and through a saddle where you got to try and catch him just at the right second when he pauses to catch his breath going up that steep slope. You got to be able to raise your rifle and it comes straight into your line of vision and those crosshairs are automatically on your target. If you have to fish for the target you're trying to shoot, you're already setting yourself up for failure. So uh, one, know your rifle as far as ballistics go and, and your trajectory out to 450 yards. And two, be able to shoot quickly. I don't mean squeeze the trigger fast or mash it or punch it or whatever you want to call it. I mean, get on target now and get stable within a couple seconds. Only way you can learn that is by practice. Using the 22, shooting little targets at the local range, but anything away from the bench is going to benefit you a lot. If I was to add a third mistake that people make, I'd say it's that they've jumped into the long range world and learned all the jargon and downloaded half a dozen ballistic apps and bought all the gear. And yet they haven't learned it uh, well enough to master their system. And the worst thing most hunters do that are trying to learn this is get real complex. They think complexity adds capability where it's actually the reverse. When you're in the backcountry and for the first time in your life, you're seeing a six-point bull elk and you're trying to judge the wind and you're trying to dig out your dope card or range it and look at the minutes of angle come up, whatever, and, and find a spot to get steady and all that, the puppy in the back of your brain starts driving pretty quick and you make a lot of mistakes. So... What I tell people is keep your long range system long range, right? For me, that's 600 yards is, is the furthest I'll shoot a, a big game. And that's only in very, very special situations with exactly the right rifle. But let's call it 450. Man, simplify, simplify, simplify. A dial up turret with yardage written on it or engraved on a custom turret where you range your target, you dial to the range, and you get on it and shoot. Keep it simple. Don't deal with drop charts. Don't have to pull up a ballistic app on your phone before you make the shot. Don't have to even look at the side of your stock and read down and say, okay, there's 425 yards. Go across the column here. Okay, we have to come up this many minutes of angle. To... No, by then your opportunity is gone. Keep it simple, but be capable. So one thing you didn't mention there, and I, I'm, it was a bear hunt. And, uh, I, I don't want to call you out here, but it was one of the things that you outlined. Um, and you had talked about earlier about the six, five and about, um, you know, animals with a six, five, sometimes acting like a, an archery hit deer where you're mm -hmm. going to have to track them. They're not dropping in their tracks. Can you talk about, you know, no, knowing the distance is one thing, but knowing that you can get there to get them and recover the animal and then any tips for like spotting after the shot because if you mm. you know if we're looking across the canyon or you know 400 yards out there you know if you don't have snow if you're in the timber like for us you know going out on a bear hunt we may have a a little meadow and as soon as that bear leaves the meadow you know now there's four different little meadows on four different little heads of drainages like which one was it um and can we get there in time type thing? So sure. can, you, can you talk through like that type of scenario? Sure. So 
big canyon country is where those challenges in getting there in time occur most commonly. Uh, when you shoot across a canyon, you got to be aware that getting down through the bottom of that and up the other side is going to be a very strenuous endeavor most of the time in big country. Some canyons are just big hollow bowls, right? And they're little pretty meadows in the bottom and you stroll across and go collect your deer or elk. But in many cases, there's going to be a raging creek in the bottom in springtime for bear hunting. It's going to be raging with runoff, makes it even more treacherous. There's going to be uh, shrubs with thorns blossoming everywhere. You can be fighting your way through a tangle of brush trying to get across there. So before you shoot, you need to take just a second if it, if an animal's across a canyon and just ask yourself, can I get there in time that the meat won't spoil, right? And if it's cold weather and and that's going to be the next morning, you know, say it's an evening thing and there's just no other way, well, you can make that decision, right? If it's plenty cold, most deer and bears and elk won't spoil overnight. You're pushing your luck, but it probably can be done. Better off, obviously, is to get there in the night. So then when you shoot, you got to try and keep your eyes on that animal. This is important with archery hunting as well, although you're usually going to be closer so you'll have a better visual. If you're shooting a heavy recoiling rifle, the, the ideal situation is to have a friend watching with you right on a spotting scope or looking through their binocular so they can give you a read in case you lose that animal during recoil a better solution and the modern day of riflery is to shoot with either a muzzle brake which means you're gonna have to plug put in earplugs right or better yet a suppressor both of those things tame recoil by a significant margin and if you build a good shooting position you'll be able to see your own impact through your scope your crosshairs probably will have jumped and kind of leaped above the the animal but if you stay focused keep your eyes open you're shooting relaxed and you follow through you don't flinch and clench your eyes shut right you'll see that bullet impact the animal and you'll get a read on what it did with luck especially with elk because they don't make a dash after they're hit generally they'll kind of trot lock up and wander around you can hit them again if you need to not always but generally if you're prepared you can get a second shot into them so watching your impact is is real important if you can do that watching where the animal goes is more than important it's crucial you need to mark its last location very carefully if you're hunting solo you need to take some really good landmarks around that animal find a you know burned tree stump or a real unique rock or something and then pick landmarks that you can use to navigate your way there because once you cross that canyon everything will look a hundred percent different also, before you leave your shooting position, look around, try and figure out something you can use to recognize that. And if it, if need be, you know, if you have some flagging tape or something, hang that where your shooting position was. Because if you shoot an animal, let's say at 325 yards, and you cross a big, deep canyon, you can range back across to your shooting position until you're 320 yards from it and say, okay, I'm on the right elevation on this hillside now. Work back and forth. I can find where I shot my animal and track it from there. So those are, are really important aspects of hunting in the West that a lot of people don't, uh, they just don't have that experience under their belt, right? If you shoot something in the backwoods behind your house, you know all the ravines, you know, you know, where the deer commonly go, their escape routes and so forth. The West is different. 
if you hunt with a partner, which I absolutely recommend doing your first few times out, your partner can stay where you shot and use hand signals, radio where legal, text messages, if you have phone service, whatever, to guide you to where you shot the animal, and then you can track it from there. It's a better situation, but a lot of us hunt solo, either by preference or uh, simply because sometimes you can't find somebody with a schedule that lines up with yours that you want to hunt with in big country, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of different skill sets. And now for for guys that are planning a trip out west, whether it's for, you know, archery elk, first rifle, you know, muzzleloader, um, spring bear, like we're doing, I guess coming at it from your side, having guided people and seeing what the, the caliber of people that come out there with their different skill sets. And now we're into, like I say, the YouTube age and people who are really, really gung ho about some of the stuff. And and we would be uh, included in that. Um, But as far as like a general expectation or recommendation uh, for guys coming out the first time, as far as, you know, we're, we're doing this spring bear hunt as kind of a, a training wheels, Western hunt, you know, going to be pretty front country going, but you're going to be able to see the terrain traverse as much as you want or as little as you want. But for guy, you know, when we did it, it was, you know, we had probably 50 pound packs walking into a place that we'd never been before. And, uh, that, that hits really heavy when you're, you leave the truck and you crest that first hill. And then it's like, now what do we do? So overall general expectations. And if you were going to recommend somebody who wanted to go on their first Western hunt, how would you say is like the ideal way to do that? Well, first don't get disheartened easily. Unlike whitetail hunting and hog hunting and so forth, you can go days without seeing uh, a shootable big game animal in the, in some parts of the West, especially on public land. But folks, it only takes once. You see the right animal one time and you, uh, you know, you do your, you hold up your end of that bargain, you're going to bring that buck or bull or bear home. Next, be flexible in your approach and don't go in there with a preconceived notion that you can hunt elk or bears or mule deer like whitetails and be successful. Be adaptable and be aggressive. Most whitetail guys are far too cautious when they get into elk country, uh, bear country, mule deer country. Sometimes you got to go, you mentioned gung-ho, you got to go balls to the walls to get across the canyon, up that ridge and into a basin to make a shot before dark. Give it all you got because you may never see that animal again. So that's, those are a couple of things I think that hunters new to the west and even moderately experienced hunters coming west can put in their uh their toolkit is to not get disheartened easily keep after it usually time and effort equal results right and then be aggressive hunt hard and be adaptable ask locals you know where are you seeing bears these days are they down in the low country feeding on grass are they up high are they feeding on you know if it's a fall hunt are they finding berries or they find in acorns whatever the case may be with elk uh, the old timers always say the hardest part of hunting elk is just finding them right you find the elk then you can hunt them use your binoculars more than your feet get up high and glass a lot 
For spring bears, there's a few tricks to this. Find avalanche shoots with a lot of green in them. Find cliff faces that are holding heat and draining water into the little pockets at the bottom of the cliff face where there's going to, so there's, there's going to be a lot of fresh young green down there. Bears coming out of hibernation need to eat a bunch of fresh green stuff to pop the plug out of their intestinal tract before they go to eating real aggressively on, you know, various proteins and so forth. So try and find where they're going to be that time of year and then hunt those areas. And Again, I mean, a, a good binocular is is an invaluable tool. Don't scrimp when it comes to buying boots or binoculars. Buy the best you can afford and then some. Stretch a bit. Uh, good glass is so crucial. You got to be able to see a deer, you know, in the shadows at 1,200 yards. So you can go then hunt him. Uh, what else? As far as expectations go, another thing that... Uh, Hunters coming from the east, from low country, let's put it that way, into the mountains is they they don't anticipate the continuous, strenuous effort that it takes to navigate a lot of this country. Don't push yourself so hard and fast the first day that you burn out. If you've got sore and aching muscles the rest of the week, you're not going to like hunting. But you got to hunt steadily. Right. An old European hunter once told me that in the Alps, the hunters going into them don't stop for rests. Here in the West, we tend to buzz fast for a couple hundred yards and then stop, you know, panting like the Dickens. And we use that excuse to glass around a little bit and then we do it again. That works because it does give you a chance to glass a lot. But in the Alps, in Europe, they often just climb slowly, but one foot ahead of the next and they keep on going until they reach their destination. The reason I bring that up, I've tried it. Yeah, you get there faster, just going slow, but steady. So slow but steady is really important, and be prepared to do that all week long. You may be covering 4 to 10 miles a day in rough country. Uh, you may find a little honey hole, which is what we're all looking for, right, that's got three or four bears in it, and you just wait till one's in shooting position. You may have to glass it three or four days. Find one that's in a position to either shoot from your vantage point or to stalk and go close that deal. So when you're talking about glass, that's uh, another incredible rabbit hole type situ situation. But very simply, you know, when you're out west, what are we talking about as far as um, power and objective lens and then you know, obviously whatever your budget will allow you, but we always think about it as like weight. So if you're taking yeah. you know, 10 by 52s or something like that, that's a whole nother ball game. So what, when you yes. say good glass, like what is uh, the bare minimum and what is. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from Hunt Stand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Ideal. Okay, sure. So... Uh, this is a kind of a fun question. I really enjoy uh, this sort of thing. 
when I say good glass, I'm specifically talking about the quality of the lenses and the coatings and the construction of that optical device. In terms of what magnification is useful, nothing less than an eight power. If you do a lot of crossover into bow hunting the West, an eight power can be nice because you're in tight cover a lot. Glass and, you know, ravines and forest thickets, whatever, that are inside of 100 yards from you. But the most versatile magnification range, in my opinion, for hunting the West, the broad spectrum of the West, is going to be a 10 power with at least a 40 millimeter objective lens. That's so that it gathers enough light that you can see in twilight conditions. Our, our pupils expand to a maximum of four millimeters in low light. You can divide the objective lens size by the magnification of the binocular. So at 10 by 40, you're going to divide 40 by 10. What do you get? You get a four millimeter objective uh, uh, exit pupil. That's enough to give your light, your eye all the light it needs to see in low light conditions. For an eight power, that would be a 32, an eight by 32. The next thing I do as a, a rifle hunter, I really like to have a good range finder inside my op. I don't like having two devices anymore where you got to lower your binocular, fish out a rangefinder, find the animal at three, 400 yards in that little bitty viewfinder, get steady enough that you get a, a reasonable range off it, then put it away or let it, you know, just drop it, let it dangle by its string while you try and get in position for a shot. It's just too much. Two devices add weight and complexity to your shooting system. Now, sometimes when you're archery hunting, that is still the best bet because you want to have everything compact, close to your chest, small devices, minimum movement, right? But for the most part, I don't even use separate range finders for archery hunting anymore. I'll use a good range finding binocular and the good stuff starts at about a thousand bucks. I can't even recommend to folks anything much less than that. There is a, a binocular, the SIG Zulu 7 in a 10 by 40 is less than a thousand and is a real really good piece of glass for the price but if i was to just give you a few recommendations of specific binoculars that work real well in the west that sig would be where it starts the next one is an optic by gpo german precision optics it's a relatively new company young company but man they're getting it just right they have a range finding binocular i think they call it the range master uh, don't hold me to that but you can get a 10 by 40 you can get a uh, eight by 30, eight by 32 in that those are fantastic. And they run between about a uh, thousand and $1,400 for guys that want a good binocular, but you know, a thousand bucks is a real stretch. That's my recommendation. Make that stretch because they're fantastic. From there, the next one I really like is called the Leica Geovid R. When you say the word Leica, everybody thinks thousands and thousands, right? This is a $1,400 binocular, suggested retail. You're probably going to find it for significantly less on a weekend sale or something like that. Doesn't have any ballistics, doesn't have any fancy-dancy computer brain inside the binocular. It just gives you a range and has really good glass. Leica glass for $1,400 is a steal. It's a ter terrific optic. From there, you can go up through, I mean... The computer brains in a lot of modern range-finding binoculars is what you pay for. So the Vortex and the Meoptas and the Revix and all these are going to go up significantly in price. And the glass 
is not going to be what German glass is. I'm just going to say it like it is. So the next step I go to is the Swarovski EL range, which is they're they're just incredibly durable. I saw one drop down a a mountain slash cliff, went 200 yards bouncing off rocks. When we went and collected it, it was just fine. Had a lot of scrapes and bangs and bruises, but the two barrels were still aligned with each other, and the rangefinder was still calibrated. It was amazing. The Leica, sorry, the uh, Swarovski EL range and the, the new compact one that weighs just 24 ounces in a, an 8 by 32 is amazing. That's probably the single best bow hunting slash western hunting optic crossover optic on the market. But those are in the $3,000 plus dollar range. So you got to work hard to get one of those. For sure. If I can add one thing to that, the reason I feel like or that I learned how crucial good optics are. When I started guiding, I used a $99 Bushnell spotting scope for a couple of seasons. And I got my job done with that. But my eyes and my head ached at night. It was bad because you're looking through them a lot, right? And I learned that I have real sensitive optical nerves. I get headaches very quickly when I'm using cheap glass. So I saved all my tips for a full season and I went and bought a Swarovski spotting scope and it changed my life. I found a lot more game, which I didn't anticipate, and I never got headaches anymore. So for a guy like me that has that real sensitive optical nerve, you just can't go any other way but premium glass. So before we wrap this up, since we're talking about glass and one thing we kind of glossed over is the magnification uh, on a scope. So if you're, you know, you see these tactical scopes that are, you know, six to 24 or, or whatever. Um, and I think guys tend to think, you know, the more magnification, the better, um, so that, you know, I can see out there to 400, 600, because we're coming from this 150, 200 yard max, uh, idea right so mm-hmm. as far as magnification and one of the things you talked about was getting back on target and being able to find it and we've all i don't care what you've hunted as a as a whitetail hunter a squirrel hunter uh you've got that scope turned up all the way to nine power because it's three to nine generally is your your whitetail scope and then you can't find them in the scope and you're fumbling around to to back it off so you can see what you need to see. So as far as magnification, what are you looking at? Like what what's ideal for those distances? Sure. So you're 100% correct. Most people are running too much magnification these days. There is a place for those great big tactical type scopes with huge objective lenses and 34, 35, 36 millimeter main tubes and you know, a six to 30 power or whatever. It's on PRS competition rifles and long range, uh, you know, F class rifles, that sort of thing. They are not good for hunting. They make your rifle top heavy. They have to be mounted high above the action because they're so big. So you can't get a good cheek weld. They're actually a degrading influence in your shooting system. You will shoot more poorly with that great big scope on top of your hunting rifle. So what range is optimal? I really like something like a anywhere from a two to a 10 to a three to 18, somewhere in there. And I never shoot a game on more than 10 power. More likely I'm using somewhere between six and eight. And here's why. First, when you throw that rifle up, if you need to find that game animal in a hurry, if you're on 
18 power or 15 power, whatever, you have a very small field of view. You're looking at the finer details of that grass downrange. You're not looking at the broad spread of the landscape and picking up that deer or elk quickly. Next, when your rifle recoils, if you're zoomed all the way in, yeah, you might be able to see the deer perfectly for that first shot, but you're not going to get back on him, especially if he's on the move for a sec- a fast follow-up shot, you know, second shot, third shot, whatever. So if you have your scope down there between, let's call it six and 10 power, and you have a good stable shooting position and a muzzle breaker suppressor, even on a, a 7mm Magnum type rifle, PRC, whatever, you can spot your own impact as long as you don't have your scope zoomed in too far and then you're right back on that animal for a fast follow-up shot which can be very crucial in the west across canyons whatever i do use the high-end magnification like 15 power 18 power whatever for group testing when i'm working up a hand load for my rifle or just checking what factory load my rifle shoots best but always dial it down to minimum magnification when you're carrying it so if you have a, a bull or a buck or a bear stand up 40 yards away from you in thick timber, whatever, you're not, like you say, fumbling to turn that magnification down so you can see more than just hair when you look through it. You need low magnification, two to three power on that bottom end. And then, geez, like I say, even if I lay down to take a cross canyon shot, I'm not going to zoom in more than a maximum of about, uh, oh, nine or 10 power. And that's made a big difference in how quickly I can make those crucial follow-up shots. And if folks, if you think you can't shoot accurately on, you know, six to 10 power, hundred percent, not true. If you've got good, clear optics, high quality glass in your scope as well, you can make shots just as precise as you need out to 600 more yards. I've seen competitive shooters with four power scopes, limited scope magnification disciplines, right? Shoot a thousand yards and hit 10 inch targets pretty consistently. It's more about the shooter and the skill than it is about the magnification. Man, Joseph, you are just a wealth of knowledge. And uh, I I really appreciate this because like I said, this is, you know, I'm probably going to get ostracized for this. You know, people are going to say, oh, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Run out of stuff to talk about with archery. Um, But I do really appreciate it because this is I mean, a ton of like high quality information in a short time. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming on today. If people want more of this and they want to say, Hey man, I, I really like what this guy's talking about. Where can they find more information um, about you and your podcast and, and, and everything? Sure. Well, I appreciate you letting me come on and talk about rifles, which I'm passionate about and share a little bit about archery too, which you know, in, in my world, what I write full-time for shooting and hunting magazines, but primarily rifle-based stuff. So I don't get to talk about it as much as I like. This has been fun. Anyway, for more from me, uh, the Backcountry Hunting Podcast is the best place. You can find that on all the, the usual podcast listening apps and so forth. I also uh, co-host on occasion with Ron Spomer on Ron Spomer Outdoors, his YouTube channel. That's a great spot. And then, of course, I write Peterson's Hunting, Shooting Times Magazine, Rifle Shooter Magazine, Guns and Ammo Special Interest Publications, and magazines such as The Backcountry Hunter on occasion. Uh, it's where I make my living, and uh, yeah, check them out. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Good talking with you. 
through the blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night, floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.